0: Welcome to Career in Ruins, the podcast version of Time Team, if Time Team was low-budget and didn't have very many listeners.
1: (laughs) That's
0: a pretty accurate representation, (laughs) mate. I know, I've worked hard on that one. Uh, It's it's probably the most um, thought I've put into an intro since our first episode. (laughs) Very apt after our uh, recent catch-up with Tim. I know, we had some fun doing some time team videos. It was quite an uh, enjoyable day, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: very nice. How you been anyway? Mm-hmm. Yeah, not too bad. Pretty good few weeks, if I'm honest. Back into the rhythm of term, teaching again, seeing students on Zoom, which is incredibly peculiar, but it's a thing that exists now. And I think we're stuck with it for a while, but overall good. How about you? How's the
1: new job? Job's going really well. Thank you very much. Um, Yeah, just uh, ticking over, learning lots of new things and getting to know lots of new people, but exciting things ahead, I think. Not least We've got a new Twitter account, at Historic Forests. So uh, check it out, people.
0: I must admit, it started to pop up as someone I ought to follow on Twitter, and it, it had a strange <gasps> familiarity about it. Sort of the, <laughs> the of a context gif? GIFs. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a kind of a classic Sure trademark Twitter account. <laughs> what do you're talking about. <laughs> I presume
1: but it's mate, a group effort. <laughs> you, you've just let slip that you have nothing to do with the Career and Ruins Twitter
0: <laughs> account, because it's purely dominated by GIFs. It's, uh, again, classic Sure. In fact, today, today, I, I picked up my phone and I thought, "Oh, a notification!" And then it instantly disappeared. So I imagined you somewhere else in the country checking your Twitter and destroying else,
1: somewhere else in the country. You mean the other side of the harbour?
0: Well, yeah, bloody miles away. <laughs> <laughs> um, what have we got on this week, man? Ah, uh, this is an exciting week for me. What I've been looking forward to for a while, I must admit, because I get to reconnect with the 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 archaeologist that taught me almost everything I know or at least some of the things I know Um, my old friends
2: (laughs) that's not a good intro (laughs) (laughs) so
0: I start that one again um Joining us today is project manager from Wessex Archaeology, Gareth Chafee, who taught me everything I know. <laughs> I stand by it, I'm standing by it. I, I'm, I'm claiming that one because uh, when I left university, I went to work at Wessex and it was just merging into a me career in ruins. We haven't done any of those yet, but I um, went to work at Wessex and uh, I the, the pleasure really of working with a few project officers. But um, Gareth was one and it's... Uh, yeah, we had some we
2: good did. times. We did, certainly
0: did. Welcome to Career Ruins, Gareth. Thank you
2: very it's, much. It's
1: great to have you with us. Just for the layman's, I'm, I'm going to throw myself in there a bit because mm-hmm. I, I've got I've got a few months of commercial experience under my, my belt, but um, very, very minimal in comparison to yourself. Um, Derek sure. mentioned there that you're a project officer at Wessex Archaeology. No,
2: no I'm my, my official term is a senior project manager.
1: Senior project manager. The senior is all important. Oh, there we go. So before um, before we get too far into your career in ruins in this this is a really exciting episode that we've got ahead of, ahead of us, can you talk us through perhaps the structure of a um a commercial unit and what commercial archaeology is? Because I think actually you're our first commercial in inverted um commas archaeologist.
2: Wow, well there you go. <laughs> I'm very honored, thank you. So yeah, commercial archaeology is is exactly that. We're one hundred percent commercially funded, developer funded. Um we are there, companies like Wessex Archaeology are there to help people um, with their planning conditions essentially, first and foremost. That could be from somebody building an extension to their house right through to big housing developments, road schemes, you know, you name it. It kind of covers, covers everything. Um, as a company, we are about 350 strong, you know, five offices across the country, head office in Salisbury, where I work. Um, yeah, multiple multiple co- uh, projects going on at the same time up and down the country. Interesting, it's interesting.
1: And I guess um, something we've always gone wanged on about in the podcast is there's no traditional career t- trajectory <laughs> in archaeology. And um, is it fair to say within commercial? the commercial aspect of the discipline, there's no traditional trajectory within there. Do you have lots of different specialists and areas that Abso- you can go into? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. So I would say the probably the majority of people actually first start in the field mm-hmm. as I did. I was, you know, I started with a one-week contract back in 2000 <laughs> um, <Sure>. And, and <laughs> so I'm a slight oddity at Wessex in that I've basically I've pretty much apart from eight days uh, I've worked for Wessex my entire career Oh wow. um, and I've pretty much always stayed in field work as well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our guys, they'll be in the field for like three, four years. They'll find a spark, a bit of interest in, I don't know, uh, prehistoric pottery or environmental um, processing or whatever it may be, building recording. You know, we've got teams who go off and do that. Some people will go off into um, geophysics. So basically as a commercial unit we are pretty much we're like a one-stop shop if you like for for everyone's heritage needs so literally you know a lot of our clients will come to us on the basis of um, employing us for consultancy then historic building recording geophysics and then finally when it gets to the fieldwork element um that's where i i kind of kick in and our guys on in in the field and then obviously we do lots of post excavation so actually kind of forming initially the kind of the the gray lit reports Um, and then that eventually develops into into publications essentially and then everything in between so lots of media presence and Mm. all of that kind of stuff youtube channels public outreach and and whatnot exactly and actually we we are a registered charity as well so we have like outreach is kind of at the core of what we do so we employ specific you know Mm. people who are skilled not necessarily with an archaeological background which is always good to Sort of mix it up a little bit, um, but they've always got a, an interest in archaeology. So, yeah, kind of a little bit of everything really, and that's the kind of the, the beauty of commercial archaeology in that there's such variety in what we do, and kind of certainly even in, in field work. You know, I've worked on so many different projects in in twenty years. That it's the it's the variety all the way up and down the country, all periods. You know, it's it's never really dull because you're. Mm-hmm. You're kind of working on the project. You could be on a project in the field for like, like as Darren mentioned mm. on the project that we worked on, which we'll talk about later. I was there for seven years, but then you know people come and go and this it's, it's the other element as well that kind of that really sparks people's interest. It, you know, ultimately we're there because we have a passion for archaeology. It's our first and foremost, it's our hobby if you like and it's our our interest and we're lucky enough to do it for for a mm. career. Um, but it's also the friendships and the camaraderie, like Derek mentioned, that, you know, we worked together probably about 12 years ago and it was, you know, yeah. the other week we had a conversation that it was like we, we hadn't like been apart, really. It was just, archaeology has that, there's that nature about the, the, the discipline. Um, and certainly in the commercial sector, you just, you get to meet all manner of people, all, all types of sites up and down the country. I think that's kind of kind of one of the benefits. And, and absolutely, if, if, if you have a spark and interest in one element, um, of of our discipline, from a scientific point of view, or from a relationship point of view, or like a outreach point of view, whatever you know takes your fancy, you can you can kind of explore those avenues.
1: That's really interesting to hear because I think um, very early in my career, well, certainly coming out of university, all the, all my friends around me were like, oh, "I'm going to be a digger, I'm going to dig, I'm going to be in <laughs> digging, commercial digging," oh. and um, one side of my my cynical side was like well, it seems a bit narrow, it seems a bit, I'm going to get cold and wet and um, <laughs> a bit repetitive. That does, for,
2: that does for some people, yeah, absolutely. They, they Exactly that. They have a kind of a great idea that they're going to be a field archaeologist in their last one winter and <laughs> realise, actually, actually, what I really want to be doing <laughs> is is I want to be sat in front of a warm heater drinking coffee uh, and, and looking at animal <laughs> bone or whatever it may be. And, that, and that's absolutely fine. And obviously, we, we need all of those elements to the prof- profession, but obviously there, there are other kind of, The hard Yeah, yeah. You know, those bunch who who get a real kick out of just obviously being outside principally. You know, that was always a big thing for me, being able to work outside. Obviously, that's, we've discussed, I'm now a project manager and I've been in management for about um, six and a half years now. That was a big change. That was a bit of a wrench (laughs) Um, moving out of the field. But, you know, for, for various reasons, I chose to do that. And I do find, if I'm honest, I do find satisfaction in what I do. It's very, very different. (laughs) you know you don't quite get the uh the same sensations as uh being the first person to see something for five and a half thousand years um those kind of those kind of um those elements that you you know the emotive elements that you used to get in the field you don't quite get that now because my life is spreadsheets Uh
0: i was gonna say it's a feeling i know incredibly well that there's nothing quite like a nice balanced budget a nice excel spreadsheet where the number at the bottom is perfectly balanced it's a real treat more importantly i mean
1: and that's that's a really nice introduction to commercial archaeology being far greater than my perhaps my close-minded or naive expectations to what it is the opportunities of moving within the discipline staying within a, a single organization to advance your career and and work to uh, the heights of managing spreadsheets. But, um, but more <laughs> importantly, um, how was it working with Derek? <sighs> uh,
0: come back
2: to that. No, it's a, oh, <laughs> that it, then, uh, of course it was a joy. It was, it was a joy. No, no seriously, but, you, know, we, you know, a long time ago, we spent a long time on big projects together with you know fairly big teams i think most of the time there were about 30 or 40 people on those projects um, and obviously we're all staying away you know you're, you're kind of like living together you're spending a lot of time together and just naturally you find that you, you make those bonds
1: would he clean um, up those bathroom after he'd finished in there <laughs> yeah
2: he wasn't the, boy. He wasn't the worst was it that way? but um, no it's just you know and and the other you know just kind of Touching on something else about that you said, a bit in terms of the career thing, one thing that we we do a lot of um, our outreach team go to lots of um, sort of STEM uh, STEM things like that, uh, you know uh, school fairs and and whatever up and down the country. And one of the kind of the main sort of driving points of that with and with a STEM as a focus is you know like say archaeologists. People think of archaeologists, people just in a field. You kind of forget about the scientific element. You yeah. forget that. Mm. A huge number of our staff um have phds they have masters they have you know and not necessarily in archaeology we employ photographers we employ uh, 3d graphic designers you know you name it they're kind of all in under one roof and you kind of forget that and that's one of the reasons I i, I do like working for Wessex, obviously because i've been there for 20 years but uh, but I, I just find it really fascinating that you can walk down our corridors and we like we work in a historic building as well it's kind of a Second World War, I a uh, pre uh, Second World War um, Air Force building. So there's kind of a like history of uh, element of history anyway. But you can walk down the corridors and just everything is so diverse that you can go into the fines room where there's processing and there'll be. A couple of bodies laid out, or somebody really comes. Kind
1: of- That's a really interesting point about the diversity as well. I think the last time I was at Wessex was just before the lockdown, and we went to go and collect sure. a 3D print that had been produced from a 3D model that had oh, been course, yeah. made of Leap. Um, I've seen that. Second World War. Um, <laughs> it was on somebody's desk. <laughs> yeah, amazing thing. But we sort of uh, we arrived, parked up, saw the Second World War structure, a bit of history, saw lots of interesting, larger, find artefacts that were around the back of the building that obviously were slightly too large to get through the doors at that time or something like that like large stone things then went in phil harding was having a documentary <laughs> made about himself at the time and there were cameras everywhere went up the stairs saw these amazing 3d printers prints from landscapes to artifacts got an to your design team had a go on a vr of a mm. um, medieval yeah, longhouse cool. or something like that and um, yeah, as you, and so I can completely understand what you mean there in terms of the diversity of each day of what what you see people it's doing. Something I, I remember looking back in
0: sort of a gift of hindsight is how working at Wessex, and this was way back a few years ago now, it it was the cutting edge of things. And I, I, I remember a, a stark realisation of going from Wessex um, back into a university environment and going from kind of having all the Top of the range kit, going out and surveying in trenches with a nice DGPS and everything being kind of on the on the technological cutting edge of innovation, and then going back to laying in grids with tape measures and and Pythagoras and kind of taking a step back into kind of the past Indian, of archaeology, yeah. and it it that that kind of being on the front line, cutting edge of innovation, it it seems to certainly since my time back then, seems to have absolutely spiralled now into 3D printing, into modelling, into visualisation, into heritage outreach in ways that, I mean, it, 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 I think it bridges what you'd call a core commercial sphere. And it's got those elements of everything. And it's, it's so nice to see a, a strand of our discipline having all of, all of that reach, I think.
2: But, and I think that's a really interesting point because the, the mm-hmm. clients want that as well. You know, it's, you know, we are developer funded. So a lot of that stuff, those advancements, are because then the, there's a need for it and there's a, an appetite for it. So, uh, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have our 3D model, uh, you know, models being made because, you know, great that we've got the technology to do that. You know, some of the models you would have seen would have been from my projects that have been made that now I can go and give talks in a, down in Devon and I can take 3D printed artifacts mm. to hand out whilst i'm talking you know and then instantly people have it's really funny you know, it's really interesting seeing people's connection with stuff like that because instead of just a, yeah. being a dry tool you know, like, <laughs> i'm sorry dry but <laughs> but um you, you're just able to connect with people in different ways and it's and that's where the like the 3d models come in because we you know are as an outreach element we work with dementia patients or you know, hard to reach groups. And, and that is the part of that element. You know, you can't necessarily, people can't necessarily physically be able to go to a site for a visit, but we can almost bring that to them. And I think that's really important.
0: Well. I think that's quite a strong point. And it, it reminds me of a conversation you and I were having a few days ago, Lawrence, where it's very easy to see archaeology in very black and white sort of crisp lines but the three of us work in arguably three different strands of a profession we've got commercial archaeology we've got heritage heritage management however you describe yourself lawrence government stuff government um (laughs) government agency (laughs) the the worst one of the three probably academia and yet in the last 12 months we've probably all 3d printed something so someone can handle something they wouldn't (laughs) ever have done and (laughs) elements of the jobs we all do overlap in such significant ways so this kind of this arbitrary all them and us kind of thing that you occasionally see pop up on twitter or facebook or whatever i think when you get into the kind of a resolution of what we're all doing on a daily basis we're all just nerds who like archaeology and like sharing it and talking about it and enjoying it and it's really nice to kind of have that come out in this chat yeah
2: yeah. I always find that connection if we go to, if we're invited to talk at conferences, for instance, you know, so there's, there's always that real mix and almost there is no, you know, you mentioned a possible divide. I, I would challenge that it probably isn't as strong as it used to be, you know, certainly, that you know, mm. I you know went to, I don't know, mythic studies group, for instance, we went there last year. Um, One of my colleagues, John, you know, uh, Derek, um, we'll come onto that site in a minute, mm-hmm. but um. Yeah, he was talking and actually it was a whole day about causal enclosures and discoveries of causal enclosures. And it that was really interesting to, for me because there was a lot of academic an academics, a big academic slant towards that. And there was lots of um talk and really interesting, fascinating talks of uh community excavations and sort of very small scale. Um, you know, we've we've um surveyed the site, we think there's a causal enclosure here, we put in some sort of keyhole slots and you know that was quite that was really interesting and really good to find and then john stands up and talks about a 30 hectare site that we've stripped and finding a complete cause and enclosure that we've 100 excavated and it's 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 just interesting to see the difference in you know the the approaches and obviously yeah. from the academic side of it, it is very tailored um obviously clearly to the students but it's very sort of um almost I- isolated and very very um, deliberately placed parts of the landscape, and obviously that's one element of commercial archaeology. We do not get to get to choose where we excavate, and that was one of one of the things I always found myself having to explain to my friends when I started in archaeology. They were like, "Why, are you, why are you there? Why are you digging that? Why did you choose to go? There? Well, how did you know that you were going to find that?" And I was like, "Well, we didn't. <laughs> we are there because essentially the landscape lands is going to be destroyed. You know, whether it's a house or a quarry or whatever it's going to be." That is part of our role. We are there to, yes, you know, regardless of the archaeology, generally, obviously, there are exceptions, but we are there to record the archaeology. And by doing the archaeology, we are destroying it, but we're doing it in a controlled way. And, you know, the alternative is that we're not there. And the quarry still, (laughs) you know, goes ahead for the next 10 years. And obviously, that's part of, um, well, originally PPG-16. And when all of that came in, you know, the... That's why we're there. That's that's kind of another key difference between, as we were talking earlier, the difference between commercial archaeology and and the academia. You know, academia. We don't get to choose where we dig. You know, and it's it's a little bit of sort of of potluck. Obviously, when you when you go out to site, you don't quite know what you're going to find, and then all of a sudden you don't think you're going to find anything, and then all of a sudden you find a cremation cemetery or whatever it may be. And then as my job now is to interesting phone calls to the client to say, um. Yeah, we're not going to be there. (laughs) Awkward. (laughs) That's
1: awesome. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a really good introduction to a subject that we haven't actually touched on at all really so far. So thank you for that. Um, I wonder if we should move on slightly. So a very quick roundup of things that have caught our attention Mm -hmm. before we uh, go into interview interview proper
0: if that sounds all right so De- Derek what's caught your attention this week uh mine is delightfully brief this week so uh, so we can uh, we can get through me quite quickly but it's, it's <laughs> it was just something I was enjoying on Twitter today and it, it got me thinking about the uh, the actually the joy of connecting to people via social media and it was it was predominantly tweets coming out of Fishbourne Roman Palace uh which I know is a, a good friend of mine Rob Simmons um he, I suspect he's behind it anyway, but uh, uh, he he may never claim it. But it was just a, it was a couple of tweets about some very obscure aspects of the site, mostly related to either Roman drains or um, uh, water pipes. And there was a lovely sh- photo he tweeted of some a drainage ditch with horse bones evenly spaced out along the drainage ditch, which is a staggeringly good photo. It must be from the fifties or sixties because it's in grayscale. But it, it when he started to tweet, I. I followed looked down to see all of the replies and comments and it was it was a variety of of really interesting archaeologists kind of commenting and bouncing about these pretty mundane aspects of the site and i just i just thought you know what i i love our job sometimes i love our life because <laughs> we can just someone tweets a picture of a, a a roman drain under some tarmac and there's suddenly a stimulating conversation and it just made me happy it just cheered me up to know yeah. i liked it <laughs> oh nice good one um, Gareth,
1: what about yourself? Well,
2: yeah, I I generally kind of just see things like uh, popping up on various uh, Facebook feeds, social media feeds, like Derek said, and yeah, every now and then a few things kind of spark your interest don't they? And uh, one thing that kind of I saw recently, that's kind of I would like to read a little bit more on. Actually, I, I, I don't know a huge amount, mainly because it's in German. But um, over in Leipzig, they found a kilometer and a half long Bronze Age fence line which um, just sounds, it looks pretty cool. The photos are great. I looked a little bit more into the site while I was there and they, were, they found various kind of neathic um, wells and preserved neathic wood and things like that. So that's definitely one I'm going to go back and have a look at because it sounds a bit interesting. So
0: is it something they'd excavated or was it a geophysics find? or
2: No, it excavated as well. Oh, wow. on, you know, having worked on, certainly in the commercial side, we, we are working on enormous sites and landscape mm. sites um that was one something that struck me as well they, they, i think that was a quarry as well actually i mean i've spent most of my career uh, career <laughs> on quarry so anything quarry quarry and archaeology related is always kind of uh, sparks the interest but that's definitely one i'll go and look at again
1: that's awesome good. we'll have to we'll find that and share that on our uh our social media so people can
2: i did i did find a cool. there's a little video on youtube it's in german too
1: Nice. Oh, mine's also um, a social media related one as well, I guess. But um, I was just—I've been really enjoying the Hadrian's Wall Community Archaeology Project. I don't know if you guys have come across that at all. Um, But this is a series. uh, I think there's a number of sections along Hadrian's Wall which have either seen collapse or damage, and um, they're actually actively excavating out the side of the wall, Mm -hmm. um, revealing right down to the foundations of the. uh, the wall itself, which which are fascinating. Um, first time they've been revealed in a very long time in these sections. Um, but they're also doing, they're just, as as you say, Derek, they're just throwing a load of different technologies at it and creating a load of interesting discussions. So they've got a portable XRF, your favourite thing, Fancy, Derek. lovely. As well as a laser scanner. And um, they're doing traditional like recording teeth. techniques as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's measuring tapes and, and <laughs> scales and everything, and cameras. It's um yeah, really really interesting project. Um, and they've got really good Twitter accounts. Um, if you if you just Google or if you just search um the Hadrian's Hadrian's Wall Community Archaeology Project. Um, well, I it's at wall underscore cap. But um, yeah, really cool, really interesting and um, a really nice area of the country and a great bit of our history. So I like that. it call my
0: attention. It sounds like the three of us have spent a little bit too much time on social media this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's almost like we don't have day jobs. It's a, a slight random aside before we, we get on to the next part of the the podcast, but I, I've got a very vivid memory of signing up to Facebook while at work at Wessex when I was supposed to be doing post X on one of Gareth's projects. um <laughs> Now you say that, I know
2: exactly what you mean. <laughs> we're all, <laughs> we were
0: all sat in a room signing up together, and I think we were probably each other's first. What friends. is
2: this thing called
0: Facebook? <laughs> and then we went to all yeah, the world as we know it. We've <laughs> oh, got ten friends,
2: <laughs> yeah, and
0: they're all in the room, and all in the room, same room. <laughs> Oh, so. <laughs> You've started to tell us a little bit about your background already, but I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd quite like to pick up on on one of the comments you made about starting on a week's contract. Yeah. And it would be really cool if 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 you're happy to, to kind of start there, but talk us through how a one-week contract at Wessex Archaeology becomes senior project manager running huge amounts of projects across Southern Britain.
2: Yeah, definitely. So uh, I went to uni in Lampeter, um, graduated in 2000, um, literally fired out a thousand letters like most people did. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that the one um, that came back to me was Wessex. Um, kind of my, sort of my local unit growing up in North Dorset. Mm. Um, and there was an opportunity actually, they, they contacted me largely because of that geography. And the, the, the first site I worked on was in um, Dorchester, Roman Dorchester. So my first ever job in archaeology and, 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 um, Having come from Lamperto, it was a, basically at the time, it was a purely theory-based degree. So there was, <laughs> that I had literally, I had done a few kind of community digs and kind of tried to seek stuff out, but I'd, I'd never kind of wielded a, a trowel in anger at all until literally my first day, on, i up with a commercial unit, which is a bit of an oddity as well. So um, getting on a train, basically getting down to Dorchester, being introduced to like the best group of people I could possibly have started with. I was like the, the greenest of the green, obviously. Um, And they were all very experienced and all showed me different things. I made incredibly embarrassing mistakes. You know, the the classic of, um, especially in a a deep strat site, starting on a deep strat site of all things, basically clearing back this really lovely layer and then just, Turn around, and standing on it to appreciate it. People just looking at me like, "Get off!" <laughs> just, just, spent, just spent a year. <laughs> just spent an hour cleaning. You no, know, all of those are you know very, very green, basic mistakes. But mm-hmm. you know they were lovely enough to each individually kind of show me different things. Whether it was drawing sections, photography, um, whatever it may be, recording, uh, using contact sheets. So just uh, such a, a huge. Um,
0: Learning Am I right in thinking in those early days you were on the um, Terminal 5 at Heathrow project? Yeah, so
2: I was about to come on to that, actually.
0: <laughs> I, so. I, I was going to say, I often think of you when I fly through there. I, I look at that big building and think, Gareth was here digging a hole. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it, that was 2002, basically. I, um, mm-hmm. I went there. I was literally one of the first. So it was a joint venture between Oxford and Wessex Archaeologies, a company company was formed called Framework Archaeology. And they had been there kind of late 90s. And then the next phases started in 2002 and I was one of about 35-40 people that started and I was there for two years and as a young bloke seven-day accommodation on the edge of, of London growing up in Dorset you know you kind of literally it was <laughs> absolutely loved it and some of my friends had moved to London so basically just absolutely brilliant I spent a lot of time you know working on the site I again kind of opportunities there um most of the time I didn't dig I was mm. Being, I was trained in how to use AutoCAD. So, all of the, and we're still doing that, all of our sites are uh, digitized. So, I was literally scanning in people's hand drawn drawings, digitizing them to create. Then, the knock on effect of those to create kind of interactive GIS um, um, programs of the site for, for help with the um, interpretation and, and post activation. So, Yeah, two years, two really great years. At its highest, there were probably about 120 people on site, so you can imagine the parties pretty pretty much every Thursday, party night, go to the pubs. And it was just, that's what I was talking about earlier, the huge kind of social side is such a draw, and then to work on unbelievable archaeology as well at Heathrow. If you've never read the uh, the, uh, publications, you should definitely check them out. But actually, as it turns out, that started... Something to do with that landscape has kind of always interested me, and as and again by just by coincidence, really, probably two thirds of my career have been spent in about a three-mile radius of Heathrow Airport, <laughs> in way, one, way, one way or another, and I'm still doing it now. You know, I I've, I've, I've now manage projects in, in that landscape, so the Middle Thames Valley is just an unbelievably fantastic archaeological landscape. So, having to, having worked and now have written about it, have been published about it, and then. Um, and now managing in that landscape is, you know, it's pretty cool. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. A couple of years at Heathrow Airport. And and by that time, I was probably starting moving into um, a supervisory level, um, which in commercial archaeology is pretty much generally thought of as one of the worst roles. (laughs) I I, I was, you know, the other thing that we should talk about, actually, in terms of archaeology, you get such an interesting mix of people in that, You'll get some people who all they want to do is dig, so they they'll dig, and they don't really want to ever kind of go supervise teams or even though they're more than capable because their interest is actually just excavating and recording decent archaeology and good archaeology. For me, I one of my goals right at the start was to to run my own sites, um, quite early on. So um, and run big sites and big archaeology and um, decent archaeology. Sorry um and yeah that kind of happened relatively quickly I guess I guess I was I think I became a project officer when I was 27 28 something like that maybe not that, sort of, that sort of age and yeah literally i I uh, was gifted and I would used that word from a co- professional and career point of view it was you know, obviously they saw something in me but I was gifted as my first ever job it was the cycle Kings me Corey Houghton. And turn up pretty much the first day there. <laughs> I think you pretty 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 much was the first day. <laughs> yeah, you got to take the rough with the smooth. <laughs> <laughs> you poor thing. But, um, <laughs> well,
1: I mean, it's
0: yin and yang, isn't it? Karma and all the other things. You get the gift, but then you get there. <laughs> I've I've got I've got to say just just to briefly hijack you for a minute there, yeah. just to be a terrible person. But the there was something you mentioned about the CAD stuff and the digitising as you go. And that was something that struck me quite heavily about the the framework stuff we worked on, both at Stansted and kind of the the hangover of framework at Horton. Um, And it certainly wasn't, it may be commonplace now, but I don't think it was as commonplace then that some of the first sites I was on at Wessex were very much, you dug your holes, you reported it, you moved on. Whereas the framework stuff, because you guys were kind of driving this on-site digitization process you were giving feedback on a weekly basis on everything we were doing Yeah, almost daily basis actually yeah actually that inspired me to to want to to sort of step into those leadership roles in a way that the the early sites didn't because you were just you were a piece in a puzzle and you never saw the whole piece but on the framework stuff and the Horton stuff after that I it changed the way I, I kind of understood project management and I think your background at Heathrow and then subsequently the Stansted and Horton stuff probably fed into that quite okay. a lot.
2: That's good to know. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> that, that approach, that approach is always... <laughs> no, need to blush.
0: <laughs> no,
2: no, no, that approach, that, the, the framework approach, that, that was the whole point that you, you did literally everything on site. So all the processing was done on site, all the finds, you know, all the finds um, processing was done on site, all the digitizing, all the data entry was done on site. And the whole point of that is you're working in the landscape. And if you want to find more answers let's let's investigate the information that you've already got. And then let's feed that straight back onto the site whilst you're there doing it. And obviously, you know, you try and do that as much as you can, but in in, in the commercial side, you can't always do that. So a lot of the time, you know, you would form an archive on the site and then bring it back to the offices. And then it will be some months before that's written up, you know, the idea of the framework approach, as you say, it was that, is that con- continual thing. And it naturally those, um, the elements of that role and that job kind of seeped into people, like you say, so that naturally from somebody like me, being in that kind of environment for a couple of years and then being given a side like Horton, we were, not that we were able to process on site or anything like that, but there was certainly that attitude to kind of to try and turn around Stuff as quickly as possible to feed it back in because so obviously that definitely helps your interpretation of the site. You're not just randomly digging holes. It's a far more structural approach. So you've been given this mega site. You're you're
0: in Hawthorne. Given
2: this utterly bonkers site, and and actually I'll tell you, I I I was working as a um, as an acting PA, like a temporary. I was on a sort of temporary upgrade for things like Stansted mm. that you referred to earlier. That, so I was actually a supervisor at the time, but I was being paid as a sort of temporary upgrade, if you like. And uh, I was aware that Horton had come out. Wessex had worked there in the early 2000s. So I was aware, and I'd worked there, funnily enough, for two weeks um, on a kind of holiday cover. So I was aware of this amazing archaeology anyway. And when you're standing at the bottom of the site and you just see this huge landscape that you think all of that's got to be excavated. This is a quarry that's going to go on for 10 years or 12 years or something. Um, So basically, yeah, I went to an office in uh, in Salisbury, spoke to the right people and said... I think I should be a PO now. I've been an acting PO for about a year. And by the way, I really want to work for Horton, uh, work at Horton. And it wasn't necessarily me asking to be a PO at Horton. I was just wanting to be a PO. And funnily enough, I want also kind of wanted to work at Horton, largely because my now wife was moving back to um, UCL. Um, so I kind of thought a site near London would be helpful <laughs> <laughs> for our weekend uh, relationship for the, the long, long-term weekend relationship, which did work. We'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it just, and then literally a few days mm-hmm. later, I got a, a phone call to come to our manager's office and to be told that I was going to be a PO at Alton. And uh, absolutely right, Derek, I turned up, I had a team of 30, <laughs> literally pr- pretty much my first day was the, uh, the largest team that I'd ever, um, ever had, or, uh, you know, subsequently would have, um, but it's just it was just brilliant it was fantastic archaeology as you know it's it was kind of a i think we ended up excavating about 45 hectares uh, multi multi periods landscapes and uh, effectively on those quar- on those quarry sites you you clear like 3 4 hectares every year you clear enough um space and land for the quarry to quarry the following year so we're always kind of one year ahead if you like so you end up with this kind of On a yearly basis, you have a relatively small scale—well, four hectares is relatively small (laughs) scale excavation. But it's the beauty is in the the detail of the landscape, Mm. you know. So, so eventually, we've ended up over over many years, kind of piecing together this fantastic landscape. And with the site being only a kind of a kilometre and a half, two kilometres away from Heathrow, which is and it's a very very well-excavated landscape just naturally that area because it's been developed so much um, you know like Eton Rowan Lake for instance is a really really um, important site so there's multiple sites there so you're just kind of constantly adding to this growing knowledge of this wonderful archaeology and Horton basically is right up there you're, you're dealing with this absolutely incredible archaeology multi-periods and, and most importantly the, the prehistoric landscape just tied in beautifully with the um, prehistoric landscape from, from Heathrow with it where they had they had a cursus monument and various kind of other elements to that, whereas we had the settlement activity, which is probably the the main thing that Horton's famous for. And um, we had so that, there's probably only about thirty to forty early Neolithic houses in the country. Some are a little bit kind of you need to sort of squint a little bit, you know, and, and and not well dated. Horton comes along, you know, okay. along probably. To, blowing our own trumpet a little bit because naturally because it was my site but you know we we come along and we find four on the same site two unbelievable um preservation kind of gully construction six posts forming like a rectangle um one far bigger than the other and then we also found two posted structures as well a bit smaller but they were very well dated and then a possible fifth um which we it was kind of they were pits by the time yeah, we excavated them, but I think our gut feeling is that they are probably postiles they were then forms. It was a former structure, it was very close to one of the houses. Um, a kind of identical shape and, and site and plan. So um, yeah, and so those houses were the one thing and the kind of neolithic barrows, um, early Bronze Age barrows, cremation cemeteries, in Cemeteries, uh, two or two slash three middle bronze Age um, settlements, which is really lovely, round houses. Um, Metalwork as well
1: that's incredible so would you say horton's were one of the the things you're most proud of in terms of work
2: absolutely from from a career point of view you know to spend seven years on one site um just because we literally went back every year um as, as the site developed and i was lucky enough to apart from there was one year i didn't go and that's because i was writing the volume which is. Good for me as well because I was writing a publication. It's got to be done. Um, <laughs> and then the last the last year or so, I, I didn't do it because I moved into management. So, but but spent so long on that project, and now now it's gone full circle because I am now managing the post excavation.
0: Nice. So
2: so the volumes are, that are being written about the houses, I am um, overseeing as well. So there is kind of a, a real kind of full circle to that. But absolutely, it's, it is definitely like completely up there. That that's like basically. Provided me with the career that I've had. You know, no question. No question. That I talk about it. A
1: lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, if that's a, a piece of work you're particularly proud of, um, and with with these ten or so years in in commercial um, experience under your belt, is, is there another site that a colleagues done, or another unit that you've come across that that have that of research excavated co- um, bit of work they've delivered that that you've been particularly envious of, or you thought they've done a really nice job there, or you know, I wish. We duck that.
2: <laughs> I, yeah, naturally. I think you know anything that comes out in the press of that kind of colour of archaeology. I think it's quite natural to be envious of it. I mean, clearly, Must Farm is up there. You know that the level of preservation is just it's just unbelievable, isn't it? I just think to to be involved in anything like that would just be unbelievable. Um, and and that's one element you don't quite always see in commercial archaeology because it, it obviously you know you. Um, you kind of get what you're given if you like. I've seen some absolutely phenomenal of stuff. I've always been quite envious of the the um, the London excavations as well. You know, the, the, the kind of the enormously sort of complex deep strat sites with the most st- stunning archaeology. I get quite envious of that. I think nowadays I'm just envious of when I go to sites and watching people excavate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's probably that's probably one
1: thing I'm myself most of now. Masfarn's um, a really nice one to add in there. And, and I always think it would be a really nice um, site, and I'm sure they've got it on their cards, to look at um, experimental work and bits and bobs like that. Yeah. And I know you guys have yeah. both got some interesting um, additions to to that sort of experience and work. So I wonder if you you might give us a bit of an uh, overview of that side of it.
2: Absolutely. So this kind of came out of the blue about a year ago, actually, um, received an email from Butser Ancient Farm, um, who are basically, the, as the email, and it was a relatively short email, they had a, a thick house that was basically falling apart. They wanted to, to build a new one. They'd found all of our stuff online about the Horton Houses, and they'd quite been interested in uh, getting a plan from us or a few photos, or maybe a report <laughs> And actually what that sparked, that initial email, was just this kind of full-blown collaboration <laughs> between uh, Butster and Wessex that has just been so, the most rewarding thing I've done in a number of years. What, what is Butster, sorry, for those that don't know? So it's an experimental archaeological, archaeology site that's been kind of been around for about 25 years or so. Um, and the premise is that they, they've got um, various buildings there that are based on archaeological evidence. So the idea is that they've they attempted, certainly in the early stages, they are attempting to build Iron Age roundhouses, for instance, is a good example, because it's probably what they're best known mm-hmm. for, build their Iron Age roundhouses using like a footprint of an archaeological site just to see, kind of get a feel for using, the, uh, principally using the correct tools, for instance, like the contemporary tools. So trying to get a feel for realistically how these things would would be able to uh, be created and how ultimately how they would look. Because You know, as archaeologists, we just see holes in the ground. You know, it's it's a bit of a shot in the dark to a certain degree about what these things would have looked like. You know, obviously, some evidence is extremely good that you can draw on. So they were looking at very, like, particular sites. Um, And so when you go there now, there's, I think they've got about five or six roundhouses. They've got a Saxon building, for instance. They're due to build next year um, a late Bronze Age house. That's kind of one thing they don't have. They got Roman villa, for instance, where they built a kind of a working hypercourse. and you know it's a it's a, incre- a really incredible place. It's my shame I hadn't ever been there <laughs> uh, until last year, and then now basically I go like, okay, there probably too much. But um, but it's just a really wonderful place. But then it started out from that kind of experimental side, and now certainly in the last kind of three four years, they've or probably longer actually, that they've turned it really into a sort of an educational place as well.
0: I must admit, it was something that caught my eye a while back and I don't think we mentioned it on the podcast but I went there with some students uh just a month or so before no with some sorry with some community volunteers a month or so before lockdown and I got a tour around this site and they started talking about how it was based on a model at Horton and I thought holy heck I was at Horton and I know the person who dug it and then I spotted a I think it was a Facebook post um, where you were talking about going down and visiting and the the thing I found most compelling about that was that you (laughs) <laughs> you excavated that site in its entirety. You ran the site. You oversaw it. You know, overseeing the postex, and you get to step into that structure. That must be quite an experience.
2: Yeah, it's pretty mad, isn't
0: it? So they they rebuilt a Neolithic house. Is that right?
2: That's correct. So they, it's it's the house that we call Horton Two. So it's a rectangular sure. structure, <laughs> <laughs> two of four. Um, so and and we chose that one simply because it's the biggest. Um, you know, ultimately they're, they're building and f- for educational purposes aside from the experimental elements to that, obviously, you know the design and the build and all of that it's definitely an experimental um, element but ultimately they're building it for longevity the house that was there before had only lasted about five or six years and was falling apart, wow. they wanted to, to replace that, come up with something a bit bigger that's going to last, you know, 10, 15 years or so, um and realistically, now when you stand in it, I think they're aiming to get, realistically, you could probably fit about 110 kids mm-hmm. or something in there. You know, it, it, is, it is massive. It's a mega so Horton, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Horton 2, basically, yeah, b- being the biggest, it was 15 metres by seven and a half. That's the footprint. Wow. So if you imagine a rectangular structure, and this is a kind of identical structure to Horton 1 in this retang- rectangular, uh, a post in each corner, and then at a midway point, there's another post, so kind of, uh, it looks like sort of six, three posts um, in, in, in parallel. But then in the internal uh, part, you've got an um, internal partition. So there's basically a small doorway. It breaks the building into effectively two cells, two rooms. So, and that was part of the fun of the design um, because with, there's no internal post cells. So there's no obvious way to support a roof structure
0: <laughs> so
2: that that became a really interesting kind of you know us as archaeologists um looking at holes in the grounds you know eight years ago in 2012 and that was one part of it i could have drawn a, day, a day, from what you said mm-hmm. but from the emotional point of view from that was a, a structure that i found one morning in 2012 while well, my team were over on the other side of the site. I was stripping the site, as you do with a 40 ton excavator. And straight away, I knew what it was because we'd seen... I was lucky enough to see one before. So I just had that moment, if you like, for that morning. Mm. I just kind of... It was just myself and the machine driver. And I was just having, like, the best time finding a massive neolithic house. And I was just always amazed it was just growing and growing. And then, like, a tea breaker would come up, went over to the guy that said guess what i just found. <laughs> you know that moment so so for me to be still involved and to have that email come through to me and that's actually um touching on that with from the butser element as well that's one thing that they're massively gaining from as well previously all their other structures they might have gone to a report and got a plan and kind of i don't know photocopied and blown it up and then kind of measured it out this time they're speaking to the not only the company that excavated it, so they're getting the reports and the primary uh, records. They're able to speak to the people who excavated it as well, um, and that was really important to us when we, because we've been actually involved in the build as well. So from mul- in multiple ways. So I was there on the first day that the first a frame went up, for instance, and I found that was really important. And luckily, you know, the company agreed mm. that we sent four people who had worked just as long as I, on that project as I did, including a chap called Andy Soule, who excavated, he was one of the ones who actually excavated the house in 2012, um, a guy, uh, as well with a guy called um, Mark Bagwell. So essentially I chose for two, only two of them to excavate the house. You know, lots of us sort of chipped in in other ways, but it was predominantly excavated by two people for consistency of records, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So for Andy still to be involved, to yeah. be there on the first day when the first A-frame goes up, and then talking about the sort of emotional point of view, um, I went back kind of a few months later and literally they had all five A-frames up. Mm. But, so I, I know I would describe that there were only kind of three posts, but uh, that has to support a um, like a 15-metre long roof. Mm. <laughs> so for health and safety reasons, we've had to, we've had to put in additional supports. Yeah. There's no direct archaeological evidence for it, but obviously they um, we are sort of, obviously taking a stab at what it looked like. Can I ask a a
0: slightly cheeky question about that? And (laughs) we may have to cut this out if you tell me I'm being too rude. But um, it's a a structure I followed for for a while since I left Wessex because obviously I've I've got a fond memory of of being at Horton. I I remember seeing, I think it must have been a few years after I left, uh, a CG... A computer-based reconstruction of the site, which yeah. looked very different to the one they're building at Butzer in terms of it. It had walls rather than A frames. Where did sure. the kind of the interpretive discussion to kind of build it in that way come from? Was that you guys, or was that the Butzer team, or a bit of both?
2: That, that's a really good question because that's one thing that we're asked most. Um, <laughs> so it's a generic question. It's a question that comes up all the time and. You know, even the other the other week on my last visit, I put a few photos on prehistoric society, for instance, mm. and that came up. <laughs> typically, <laughs> so so that was it was a collaborative thing. Mm. It was principally driven by Butzer because they, they're the they're the guys who've got the experience of these builds, mm. so they understand more about the the physical. Effort to actually create a structure. I have no idea. I'm just I just look at holes in the ground, you know. So they were going by our footprint so accurately as well. I would mm-hmm. will say that, that it is so accurate to our footprint. It was effectively pegged out on the ground. And the elements, the care that they've taken to mimic the archaeology is, is bonkers. Um but the A-frame, basically, that was something they came up with because they know from their experience that the roof, a thatch roof, has to be at least um, 45 degrees mm-hmm. ideally 50 degrees simply because of the you know less than that is just not an effective mm-hmm. thatch roof so going on that premise and because we know the building's kind of seven meters wide yes they could have basically put a big roof on and then had supporting walls but we also live in the 21st century and there was planning restrictions <laughs> oh no
1: <on> <laughs> oh no
2: <laughs> but but actually what that's you know that that doesn't that doesn't distract from what we wanted to build mm. because actually in our designing we came up with about six different styles that, of ways that it could have looked yeah yeah and uh, and each one was true to the archaeology. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Did any of those
1: styles not have a roof?
2: (laughs) Well, well, no, no, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. You know, we are making an assumption. You know, there there are always assumptions when you come to these builds. And actually, there's a guy um, uh, called uh, Trevor Creighton who works at Butser, who's just like the most fascinating guy. And Claire Walton, who's the the archaeologist, who I've been working with principally on these. And and yeah, that's exactly part of it. Mm. We are making assumptions. It's pre we're making the assumption that it's got walls and we're making the assumption that it's got a roof. It, and we're making assumptions that it was for human human beings to to, to well, actually be Yeah, it. There are elements in the archaeology that lead us towards no thinking that it did have a wall. You know, you there was certain things in the sections that you could see in the certain the depths of the gullies, for instance, would suggest that they were they were kind of load bearing. The positioning of the the posts, um There were, um, artifactually, we had, you know, um, uh, arrowheads, we had pottery, we had really lovely worked bone walls, polished stones, you know, there were elements that kind of definitely hinted towards that. Before we excavated, I will say as well, we did um, phosphate analysis Mm. and magsas analysis. So there was a, you know, we did all that kind of scientific Um. element, if you like, before. Mm. And on this particular house, what that actually did pre-excavation was it picked out a hotspot huh. in one in the southeastern corner of the gully. And that's where we found the doorway. Mm. You know, you couldn't see it when we stripped the site, but when we excavated, that's where the doorway was. That's... So when you go to Butser now, the doorway is in the right place. Mm. And and I can remember, you know, going out to uh, out site to speak to Claire and seeing this development. And it was just like saying, oh, right, you know, So you've put the door there. I was expecting it to be there. And she was like, well, your door was on the southeastern corner, wasn't it? I said, yeah, well, that's what we've done. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, those elements. So essentially, yes, we've made an assumption that, you know, you can make an assumption that it's got a roof and you can make assumption that it's got a, um, has got walls, but the, the issue with walls and when you're putting such a heavy roof on top, mm. in, te- in terms of the support that you need to kind of tie everything together. So those walls, those vertical walls don't just don't fall apart. So actually, and because of the height restriction, that almost kind of helps because you, Let's take away the walls. Let's just bring that that triangular shape down to the ground. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I, and the the other thing to point out is experimental archaeology. Mm. It is not there as a representation of what that building looked like. It is there as a representation of what it could have Yeah, been exactly. Outside. I
0: <laughs> I was really <laughs> taken by the design actually because I thought and when I saw it I thought that makes sense. That that actually I can I can understand why You'd do it that way because with the kind of a limited number of posts, I don't think you could have load-bearing walls and have a roof. No. I think you could have load-bearing posts, but elements of a roof resting onto hard clay earth, and that would make sense and that would work. And I think That's I was sweet. quite taken by it.
2: So, so now that that first day when I, I went back and they had put up all five posts and it was in like this kind of skeletal form, and I don't mind saying, even on a podcast, I had a moment. I stood in that building. And the whole issue of me finding it eight years ago, being on this kind of journey throughout the project to then go full circle to then receive an email saying, we want to build the house that you excavated, which, which is kind of bonkers in itself. And to stand in it now, now the thatch is done and you know, they're almost complete. Unfortunately, obviously COVID came along mm-hmm. at the wrong time and you know it was due to be completed at Eastern. They're just finishing up the, um, the final thatching now and the kind of the final details you stand in this enormous building and it is huge, isn't it, Derek? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 15 meters by seven and it has no internal supporting. Hmm. <laughs> 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 Which is kind of it's just kind of weird in itself. I know it's what like,
1: you need. You need a time machine <laughs> to uh, go back and confirm these things, which leads us beautifully into our I don't know final if you can question. preempt that, but, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um, our final question that we like to ask people on the podcast is: um, we've got a working time machine, and uh, yeah. to thank you for your time you've taken out to uh, join us today, we give you a free return journey in our in our time machine. So all we need to know is where you'd like to go and uh, what you'd like to see.
2: Uh, well, from what we've discussed, I clearly want to go back to the Roman period um <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I think it's obvious what I'm going to say, isn't it? I, I a kind of, I, I've always been fascinated in the transitional periods anyway, and just my experience and my career is always kind of largely focused around the Neolithic and Bronze Age periods. Mm. Um, but I would have to say. You've got to go back to the near the period and just actually see what those houses look like. <laughs> and just see realistically how they made them. I'm, you know, and, I'm
1: imagining this moment a bit like someone invented the wheel. Someone invented the roof. So you can go to this particular point and you're like, oh yeah, maybe we could put a roof on it. What's a roof? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely,
2: absolutely that. I think, you know, it's just yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. You just have to go back to sort of seeing because you know that that's the I was chatting to somebody today, even like trying to explain to a client that archaeology we're, we're largely just guessing all the time. <laughs> you know, they're, we they're ultimately, they're, they're sometimes really good guesses, but, you know... Educated guesses. Educated <laughs> guesses. So, but that, that's kind of the beauty of what we do, isn't it? It's just what we're talking about now in terms of Horton, 50 years down the line, somebody else is going to look at our archive and just probably laugh at what we're talking about and <laughs> say, no, it's not that. It's, it's clearly this, but, you know, that's the beauty of it, isn't it? That just things are constantly evolving. We, we have our best kind of stab at what what things were, what things what people were doing, you know. And, you know, talking about emotional things, I always remember going full circle now, back to that very first dig down in Dorchester. And the one thing that really struck me on the side, and that still kind of regularly comes up in conversation, is we had like a really scrappy mosaic floor. And um, it was my job to kind of record it and then lift up, you know, there, there's very little of it left. But then as I took away the flooring, I found like a series of coins basically on the edge <laughs> between the wall. <laughs> and it's that moment when you're on my very first day of looking at these things, holding in my hand, you know, getting over the fact that I'm the first person to see these in like the 2000 years. But also that human element. I just imagine the guy stood in the room, putting his hand in his pocket and then a coin dropping out. And then he's, later on, he's just like, what did I do? And it's just rolled off. <laughs> There's really human elements. And I think, you know, that all kind of, ties into absolutely what we do and and certainly my experiences with butter you know the the discussion is just it's it's, yeah it's takes a different slant on 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 just archaeology so you're not doing like kind of the run-of-the-mill run-of-the-mill projects there's always there's always something that's fucking interesting in in archaeology and reigniting stuff as well you know reigniting interest and passion so
0: oh i think that is probably a brilliant point i could begin to draw a close. I mean, I could talk to you about this for hours and we we have done in the past and we, I suspect we will do again mm-hmm. in the future, but I, I'm aware that podcast listeners um, sometimes have to go to bed, sometimes have jobs to go to, so we should probably start to bring mm-hmm. it to a close. But thank you so much for joining us. It's been really nice to catch up on all this and actually hear some stories about your career that I didn't know. There were some surprises here, which I've, I've quite enjoyed, <laughs> but also just being able to think about archaeology beyond the boundaries of of our three different jobs has been a real pleasure. And hearing hearing the love kind of you the love in your voice, the, the joy in your voice when talking about experimental reconstruction and the and kind of the, the passion for the subject. I I without making you blush too much, I would credit some of that enthusiasm for my for setting me on a the trajectory that got me to kind of where I am now. And I think if if I hadn't worked with folks like you and and probably John Millwood and a few others, I don't think I'd have committed to a career in ruins as, as i did and i think it was mm-hmm. it was that that genuine joy and enthusiasm that really made archaeology something special for me post-university so it's it's been really it's been a genuine pleasure to catch up about it in this podcast oh, thank you. but probably also on that note i'll uh, draw it to a close thank all our listeners for tuning in um, we'll post some links to some of the things we mentioned today and do keep listening do keep tuning in and thank you very much